The following is a message from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Good morning. Wonderful to be with you. Uh, One of my... One of the students from here who attends our church said there would be five of you, so apparently there's revival breaking out. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 3. This is God's word. May we give our attention to it. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst You shall never again fear evil. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. And gather the outcast, I will change their shame into praise, and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, and at that time I will gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that in your light we would see light. And we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, when's the last time that you personally have ever uh, ha- have rejoiced in the way where you sort of lost yourself, uh, in the way that's a bit undignified, uh, where you've lost uh, all sense of proportion? Uh, For some of you, it was probably uh, likely at a sporting event. Uh, For others, uh, I imagine at the birth of a child or a wedding or when finals were over. Uh, It's it's always a glorious time. Uh, But that sort of rejoicing is actually what is being called for in this particular text, if you look at what Zephaniah is saying. And we will see this morning uh, that this call for delight is for a very particular reason, for what God has done for his people. And as we sit here this morning, I mean, you're students at Westminster West. Uh, this isn't lost on you. Uh, the question is, what are they rejoicing in? And I think the danger for us at this point is to say, well, you know, ho-hum, the forgiveness of sins, or, oh, yes, the gospel. And we, we know the right answer, and then we just move on. Uh, it's in one sense, uh, the danger or the intimidation you will face as a minister. You know, can we preach this message weekly? Uh, and have it not get tiresome or, or run its course and no longer be needful. I want to exhort you this morning from this text that there's so much more to be rejoiced in concerning the gospel, so much more to be discovered. And I would dare say that even those of us who know the gospel the deepest don't know it nearly deeply enough as we look at texts like this this morning. So where are we in the book of Zephaniah? I'm going to give you the quick Quick and, quick and easy uh, in Zephaniah. Uh, surely a text of judgment. As you look at the first couple of chapters, God has threatened Israel. And verse 2 of the very first chapter gives us a very good summary of what is to be expected. 
He says, I will utterly sweep everything away from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. In a very quick uh, summary fashion, we see an undoing of the whole creation. Both man and beast, birds of the air, fish of the sea, all that God has made is utterly going to be undone. It is that sort of judgment that is being expected in this particular prophecy. And as the text proceeds, these ominous declarations uh, are, are given as we, and we as the reader, are brought into this particular story. And we, while not literally hearing uh, these noises, we literarily hear the scene of judgment. This judgment will not be lost on anyone, even the people of God. And we hear Judah and Jerusalem are in terror. They cry aloud. It says there is weeping. It says there is a loud uh, clashing that is going on. These are the sounds of war. And we even hear in the midst of this text a cry for war come in the midst uh, of Jerusalem. What is most interesting, or in one sense uh, most frightful, is that this cry for war comes from God and from his armies. And God and his armies, as they arrive, and as this war cry is given, begins to march toward the Holy Land. And one by one, the enemies of Israel are being destroyed. The nations on God's hit list are kind of being checked off as he approaches the Holy City. And finally, the whole of Jerusalem is surrounded by God and his hosts. You know, as we think of how God would uh, encounter his people as the mighty warrior for them, we would think at this point, you know, uh, the armies would go back to back and face outward against the nations, against any threat. But instead, all of God's armies have turned their weapons and their face inward toward the nation themselves and is now, are now being threatened with God's very own wrath, that they are going to pour out their anger and their might on God's own people. Why? Well, if you have any experience in the Old Testament at all, because she's a rebellious people. Zephaniah puts it in this way, that uh, she doesn't obey her Lord. She refuses to be corrected. She will not trust. She will not draw near. Zephaniah says things like her officials and her rulers are flesh-eating animals. Her prophets are proud. Her priests pollute the holy. The whole nation is sick from head to foot. And God now is ready to use the same power that he used against the nation, against his own people, in order that he might purify the world in which he created. And so God says in the midst of Zephaniah, wait for me, for I am coming. And he says, I will stand in your midst and be with you. And I will testify against you. Notice God says, I'm going to be with you. And when I am, that is bad news. But that's not our text this morning. I mean, you'll notice uh, the text this morning calls for rejoicing. I mean, so how do you get in, you know, two and a half quick chapters from the sounds of war and terror to these calls for rejoicing and singing and losing yourself in this sort of exuberant uh, 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 displays of joy? How do we get from Zephaniah's frightful day of the Lord against a rebellious people to a people whose lips are pure and speak no lies? The first thing we see is this call to rejoice. Notice, rejoice, rejoice. There are four actions commanded in verse 14 and following. 
Sing, shout aloud, be glad, rejoice with all your heart. You'll notice each of these are building upon another. Each of them are commands. This is what I want you to do. And as you hear these kind of terms throughout the Old Testament, they're often associated with the kind of uh, outward displays that come from irrepressible excitement. Because some sort of event has occurred that you cannot but help uh, to outwardly show your joy and satisfaction with what has just occurred. You see these sorts of terms used in situations like when barrenness and shame are removed and a child comes. These sorts of terms surround events like a war long fought and finally victory comes. Or exile uh, and captivity are sentenced and finally you get released. It is this sort of irrepressible joy that God is commanding his people here in Zephaniah. I think all of us are very familiar with you know, the uh, oft-used illustration of David and his sort of rejoicing when the ark comes back to Israel. This event that takes place where God's presence and blessing are finally making their way back into the Holy Land and David can't but help rejoice in an undignified manner. Makes a fool of himself because of the joy that he uh, is experiencing, much to his wife's dismay. That is the sort of response that is commanded And that is right after two and a half chapters of God saying, woe to you. So how do we get from woe to you to sing and rejoice? It's so odd uh, that uh, modern scholars, because of what they do for a living, say uh, this can't possibly be part of the original prophecy. You can't expect to, to command this sort of joy to a people who are 30 years from deportation and exile. Uh, So clearly this is added later. This is just psychologically cruel uh, to command this sort of thing at this point in the text, which I would just note for you who are going to be preaching. Whenever you read in a commentary, this can't possibly be original. Uh, You have found the place where the good stuff's going to be in your sermon. Uh, Figure out why it's there. God didn't put it there on accident. So why? Why here? Why now? Notice, oddly enough, the answer in the text is, Because God is with you. Earlier in the text he says, be frightened for God will be with you. And the the rejoicing is commanded here because God is with them. Notice what it says uh, in verse 15. The Lord has taken away your judgments against you. He has cleared your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He will say it again in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Notice, he is with them and for them, and that is why they're to rejoice. Yahweh has taken away their punishment. He has conquered their enemies. The whole book is about judgment, and they're to rejoice because somehow that judgment has been escaped. The text is about being surrounded by enemies that have often trampled over Israel and polluted their land. And he says, those enemies, they're gone. And the greatest enemy, their greatest threat, God, who said, when I'm in the midst of you, Be terrified is now saying, I'm in your midst and I'm for you, so rejoice. Notice we are told twice that God is with them. And the result every time is that they should no longer fear. In verse 15 and in verse 16, do not fear, never again will anything harm you, because I am with you. How glorious that day would be. When God, the one who fights for his people, comes into their midst to fight for them and to be with them 
in order that they have fear no more. He is with them as God for his people. So how does that take place? I mean, it's somewhat mysterious in the text. Zephaniah doesn't flesh out how this turn of events comes about in great detail. And yet, as we sit here on this side of the cross, we know how these events take place. How is it that God is with them and for them? We see that event begin, of course, in Bethlehem, in a manger, where this one born of David's line, this weak one, comes and he is named and called Emmanuel, God with us, and Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. You see, it is through the incarnation of God, the fact that God would be with us, that we can truly rejoice and obey these commands. That God is with us no longer to do us harm, to bring us judgment, but rather because Christ comes, God incarnate, to be with his people in Israel, but not only to be with them, to be lifted up in their midst and to take the very wrath that was sentenced against them in order that they might come forth rejoicing and have fear no more. It's not until the cross that the mystery of Zephaniah can be solved. Through these actions, the cross, our judgments are taken away. It is through this action on the cross that our enemies have been defeated. It is through this action that God can be with us and for us at the same time. Instead of it being bad news, it can become good news because God willingly humbled himself and lifted himself up to take the very wrath that was aimed at us, his people. And our response? What else could it be? Rejoicing. But notice the rejoicing is based in the fact that there's nothing left to fear. Twice, he says, all of those enemies have been removed. Twice he says, fear no more. We have the, not only ability, but the requirement to rejoice. Because all that was against us has been taken and removed once and for all. All fear is truly gone. If we believe this, the question has to be, then where is the rejoicing? But what's interesting about this text is, As good as that news is, that's not how ridiculous the good news gets in this text. It gets far more scandalous than this. Notice what it says. God is with us as king. He's with us as savior, verse 17. But notice he's with us as chief celebrant. Notice, if you would, in verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quieted over you in love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Interesting, this undignified celebration that God calls us to in verse 14. The sort of celebration that David uh, engages in at the entrance of the ark. God himself says, I am going to engage in that sort of rejoicing over you on that day. And that's a strange picture. God, the warrior king who delights over his church so much that he's willing to rejoice in this unrestrained and undignified way because of his great love for her. I think we can understand God as king, God as judge, God as even good shepherd or warrior. But God as one who rejoices over us 
I think it's very difficult for us to comprehend. God delights, it says. He's quieted over you in love. This one who was before roaring in wrath in the text of Zephaniah is now quieted and contented with the one whom he loves. This one who called us to sing is now singing over us. Zephaniah begins with one of the most extensive judgments in the Bible. All creation undone. And it ends with one of the most outrageous and undignified displays of celebration and singing in the whole Bible. And it's not us primarily, but God who is doing the singing. He does what he calls us to do with one major difference. And this must be seen or the point will be lost. Notice what he says to you when he calls us to rejoice over him. He calls us to rejoice and then he lists all the reasons he's worthy of such response. I forgive. I deliver. I will cast out your enemies. And then when he rejoices over us, what will he list? What will he put as the reasons that he stands over his church with this sort of joy? blank. There's nothing to list. He, he just does it. He does it because he wants to, because he has set his love upon them. There is nothing that they bring at all to the show. And yet he delights in his people. Notice, Israel is at her worst. And God promises he's going to act for her, and then he's going to rejoice over her as if she is worth something. You know, you don't have to be much of a sports fan uh, to have uh, not been uh, inundated with Tiger Woods news over the past year. And, you know, we all know the scenario. Uh, most of the news was not because he was a uh, great player at the game of golf. Uh, it was all about him being a player in a different game. Uh, and uh, all of the kind of dissatisfaction that came from his wife and others. Uh, and you even hear it in the news, you know, a friend saying, you know, if I know his wife at all, she's now calculating ways to get back at him at this very moment. But imagine if the scenario was reversed, where if it wasn't the powerful and rich celebrity who was the one running around on his wife, which we've almost come to expect. I mean, how can you expect him to be faithful to one person? I mean, he's, 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 he's so rich, he's so powerful, he's so popular. I mean, we, we, you've got to just come to uh, you know, understand these things. But what if instead, if it, was, if it wasn't the celebrity, but rather his unknown wife who ran around on him, and not, not just once, but every time the man left town, multitude of lovers. When he found out, I think we would expect, well, you know, this man deserves better. Doesn't she know he can get anyone he wants? And yet she's going to, be treat, he's going to, she's going to treat him like that. I mean, he should leave. But what if, in this scenario, he actually chased her down? And then once he chased her down and restored her, treated her and rejoiced over her as if she was just as pure as the driven snow. You see, that is the story of the gospel. Not that we have been so faithful to God, not that Israel had anything to offer, but rather time and again, she whored around on him and he chased her down. And then when he did, according to Zephaniah, when through the love that he showed and displayed on the cross through his son, he finally found her and bought her and restored her. He rejoices over her as if blameless and pure. You see, God rejoices over you because of the love which he set upon you in Christ. And for no other reason 
And why this is so important is notice Israel is utterly changed by the end of this text. The only thing that's going to change you, dear brothers and sisters, is not your striving or your great desire for holiness, as wonderful as those things may be, but understanding that all fear is gone because God has acted for you. And he loves you in a way that he genuinely rejoices over you. In your lust, he rejoices over you. In your complaining, he rejoices over you. In the midst of your pride and your conceit, he rejoices over you. And if that sounds too far-fetched, we don't understand the gospel nearly as clearly as we should yet. You see, he believes something about you in his son. And he's genuinely delighted with you through his son. And it's the belief in that that will lead to the rejoicing that verse 14 calls you to. And then and only then will true holiness come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for the gift that you've given us in Christ. And we pray that we would understand it just a bit. That we with Paul would pray that you would reveal to us just a bit of the height and depth and width and length of your love. Lord God, that we might be changed. In Christ's name, amen. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.